Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. to part two of my big fat 16th birthday weekend. In my previous episode, we had a fairly hairy experience camping on the farm. We had also learned, thanks to Special Branch, that Masitwi Farm was due to be attacked that Saturday night. So clearly the prelude to my party hadn't exactly gone off to an auspicious start. Whether there were terrorists on the farm planning to attack the house that night was, well, it was neither here nor there. There was just too much to do, too much to think about. The next day, the household kicked into party mode. Afternoons in Africa are generally so quiet that for those more used to city life, it can be almost unbearable. Of course, the silence is always broken by the mournful bush doves or the go-away birds. The sounds of the farmyard die down. The tractors are parked in the shade. The farm boys are asleep in their compounds. Only the distant click-clicking of the bamboo grove down by the sheep pen breaks the monotony as the tall, smooth branches expand in the heat, or the occasional snap of a monkey bread pod as it heats up and explodes, spraying seeds over the ground. But on this particular afternoon, the homestead was a hive of activity. From the pool area, there were intermittent splashes and shouts as the kids swam and played or lounged under the thatch rondavel by the water's edge. Inside the house, cooled by the smooth, polished Sonoya slate floor and high ceilings, a constant flip-flop of heels could be heard as my mother moved from one end of the long L-shaped veranda to the other, arranging vases of roses and chrysanthemums and gypsophila, shaking out tablecloths and laying them on trestle tables, delegating staff and moving furniture in the dining room where the dance floor would be. Vinyl records were carefully being stacked in order of play next to the old bush stereo. Five fast, one slow, four fast, one slow, two fast, two slow. Towards the end of the evening, the music would all be slow shuffles, allowing the teenagers to become more intimate. Most of the records came from my cousin Madeleine. Her mother, Sue, managed to get all the records for free from Gallo, where she worked. My own collection was questionable, not entirely surprising given my father's loathing of anything musical.
Madeleine's room back in town was adorned with posters of Bowie, the Stranglers, the Sex Pistols, Debbie Harry, and, for sentimental reasons, some older ones, of a gloriously backlit Peter Frampton, and the Bay City Rollers in their bizarre striped socks and fantastic high-heeled boots. bed was always strewn with well-worn copies of smash hits or melody maker sent out from the UK by her dad. Walking around Madeleine's room was like a trip through 1970s British music. Back on the farm down at the guest cottage, the girls were busy with curling tongs, making up, trying on clothes. There were skinny midriffs, hipsters, bell-bottoms, heavy blue eyeshadow, gypsy tops and halter necks. Despite the international sanctions, Estee Lauder and Revlon still managed to get through. Most farmhouses in those days had their own bar, stocked with lethal Rhodesian gin, vodka, scotch and ghastly liqueurs brought back from holidays. Not for the kids, of course. For tonight, a selection of farmers from around the district would descend on Woody's bar and ride shotgun, should any trouble occur. The bar itself was built by my father from the hard, black, indigenous ironwood trees that dotted the nearby bushveld. The same wood was used to make flutes for bagpipes. The walls of the bar were festooned with trophies, cape buffalo, sable antelope skulls loomed over the sofa, their arched horns resplendently proud while bushpuck, impala and zebra skins lay strewn across the floor. On the bar, a set of ivory dice in a furry box made from a dried reedbuck scrotum, and a silver inlaid icebox made from a hippo's foot sat centre of stage in rather grotesque fashion. On one wall, a beautiful glossy leopard skin was stretched and pegged, Another old rogue shot several years earlier after it started eating carbs. Behind the bar, a pair of giant warthog tusks and a menacing baboon skull. It was all rather grotesque when you think about it. But of course, the bar wasn't entirely a man's world. My mother still managed to create a feeling of comfort by arranging vases of dried flowers cut from the bush. There were pampas, bulrush, dried calabash, Chinese lantern and papyrus. The shelves were stacked with beautiful reference books on Michelangelo, Caravaggio, the Dutch masters, Titian, Van Gogh, 
and a beautifully bound copy of J.M. Denton's son's History of Fashion. And there were stacks of untidy photo albums mapping out our lives in shambolic detail. Many an hour was lost lying on the sofa, reading the books and leafing through the stacks of old albums, excitedly examining the gorgeous torso of Michelangelo's David, or guiltily tracing my fingers along the veins running down the arms of Moses. There were certificates from the Pioneer Society, proudly stating us as grandsons of pioneers. There were framed photos of my brother in the army, a creased black and white of my father standing next to a dead elephant, my mother trying to look like some movie star, my sister all made up like a Charlie's angel. An old musket hung above the window, and above another window the skin of a python that we thought had swallowed a child. We were wrong, thank God. The bulge fortunately turned out to be a small reed buck. On the coffee table were old editions of Harper's and Queen and a catalogue about Palace House, Bewley, Hampshire, where my mother would constantly remind guests that her cousin Fiona was the Lady Montague. In the spacious kitchen and out of the back of the house, Fred, our cook, was issuing orders to the staff. Fred was in his element. He loved the drama of these parties, the time to show off his skills, his knowledge. He also got to catch up with some of the other cooks, such as the Moorcroft chef, Manuel, who was over to lend a hand. Manuel was originally from Mozambique and brought with him the extraordinary flavours of Portuguese cuisine, much of which rubbed off on Fred. Both cookboys knew some of my friends and occasionally during the day would pop their heads round the corner to say hello, have a chat or offer someone a Coke. Fred, like most long-serving staff, was well-versed in my parents' moods, their movements, their habits. But more importantly, he had witnessed the work that had gone into this hard, unforgiving farm and had watched it prosper. Indeed, Fred came to open up Masitri with my dad back in the 1950s, even before my parents were married. Like many good head chefs, Fred was an important figure, both amongst his peers and their employers in the district. When he answered the phone, he would take in our surname and announce, Hello, Fred Wood here, much to the amusement or confusion of the caller. We weren't to know that this use of the master's surname originated in the slave quarters of British West Indies. Macarena, the Harrington's nanny, had learned her English from Jean Harrington and spoke such perfect Queen's English that callers would often mistake her for Jean. Fred was overseeing the food and drinks for the party. A huge zinc tub out at the back near the boiler was filled with blocks of ice, cool drinks and beers. A bottle opener tied by a nylon twine 
hung from the handle of the tub. A large Virginia ham, boiled in spices and ginger beer, was being sliced onto large platters. Salads were being tossed, and trifles and creme caramels were being turned out onto glass trays. Small dishes of homemade antelope biltong was being delicately sliced into small snack dishes to be taken down to the bar, as were roasted monkey nuts and farfa, a curried Indian snack. Meanwhile, the silverware and crockery were getting a final polish before being taken out to the tables on the veranda and placed between luscious centerpieces of frangipani. It wasn't exactly Downton Abbey, but it was still pretty impressive. Towards late afternoon, the first convoy of cars began arriving, bringing with it a fine cloud of red dust. Because of the danger of being ambushed on the roads, people always arrived and departed together. The first to come were the adults assigned to guard the house, a collection of friends and neighbours, each with their own histories, all with their own stories. It was a beautiful time of day to arrive, with the garden looking at its best, the heady smell of moonflower and jasmine, rambling rose and orange and mandarin blossom filled the evening air. Banks of busy Lizzie and Petunia tumbled from baskets around the patio. It all looked so benign. By nightfall, all the guests had arrived, making their way across the lawn to the veranda and the bar. Excited chatter, laughter and greetings echoed across the house, while rifles and revolvers were stashed behind the bar, hidden but close enough should they be needed. The party got off to a great start, the adults got sloshed, the kids got close, we bumped, we did the funky chicken, the YMCA, we bopped, we shuffled, the music slowed, the lights in the sitting room were dimmed with red raffia paper. The old folks forgot about the war and got sloshed. On the dance floor, eager mouths and hungry fingers probed the teenage flesh. Then my father snapped. It began as a slow, deep rumble increasing in volume in just a few seconds. From across the garden near the cottage, I could hear the commotion begin and very quickly reverberate across the lawn and into the house.
silence quickly descended. The needle on the record player rudely screeched across my Linda Ronstad. The rooms, one second ambient and dark, were now unceremoniously thrown into bright light, confused, dazed and inebriated kids caught unawares. A couple of rather plain wallflowers were standing in one corner with wide eyes, observing the hoo-ha. Concerned adults stumbled out of the bar, weapons cocked, their eyes darting around to see what was afoot. My father, unfortunately, had walked in on two teenagers and twined on the double bed in the cottage. His outrage in having discovered this disgusting carnal act of indecency, together with the knowledge that we might expect an attack from terrorists at any moment, was enough to bring him crashing to his senses. My father was someone who didn't particularly enjoy music, children, and, quite possibly, sex, in that order. And this was the perfect time to end off, round off, and fucking well cool off. His voice bellowed across the lawn and continued unabated for a full ten minutes, by which time any chance of recreating the atmosphere had long since evaporated. Several weeks of careful planning down the drain in a matter of seconds. Bloody disgusting brats, fornicating under my very own roof. They should be shot, was one phrase many children would take home with them that night. Christ, he was like bloody Charlton Heston coming down from the mount. Oh, for God's sake, John, just calm down. It was Mona Moorcroft, one of the few women who had any power over him. Alas. Tonight he was not for turning. Adults rounded up their charges and hushed groups and, thanking my mother for the wonderful evening, departed en masse for their homes. For many, it meant 25 or 30 minutes on dirt roads. It seemed a better option to brave the landmines and ambushes rather than face my father's wrath. As soon as it started... It was over. My father was never one to hold a grudge. Besides, it was way past his bedtime. With a final grumble, he marched off to his bedroom and flipped off the power, plunging the entire house into darkness. The kids from Salisbury had to stay the night, and very soon muffled laughter or murmured conversation could be heard from distant corners of the building as friends and newfound lovers recapped the night's activities. At no stage had any of the children been told about the imminent attack, and it was to my mother's utter horror that the following morning she was to walk outside and find several kids fast asleep beneath shrubs and bushes in the garden. Images of an RPG rocket screeching towards the dance floor or the white-hot traces searing across the garden at sleeping children was enough to give her nightmares for a long time. And yet for now, notwithstanding the drama from the previous night, 
The party was a roaring success and would be talked about for many months to come. Perhaps the gods had favoured our happy gathering that night, yet they were in no mood to tolerate us the morning after. After breakfast, my mum and the kids from the city piled into the two cars and departed for Salisbury. Once again, the farm was plunged into silence. Nursing a sore head, I went into my room for a nap. As the world closed in on me, my brain began to pick out the distant sounds of my mother's voice. Initially dreamlike, a voice that at first seemed so far away it was difficult to discern what was being said, or even the tone. But very soon the anxiety and the panic in the voice started hitting home, crashing through layer upon layer of sleep-induced fog. John! John! Come quickly! There's been a terrible accident! That is not something you want to hear. My immediate reaction, naturally, was to believe that they had been ambushed. The sudden guilt, the anxiety and the horror is impossible to describe. This was my party, these were my friends, and of course it was my responsibility. We had assured their parents that we would take good care of them. My dad and I rushed outside to meet my mother, my father taking control, calming, dependable, solid. In the panic and commotion, the story began to unfold. Foxy had taken the lead in the rental car. His passengers were my cousin Madeleine, her friend Beverly, and Spike and Sean in the back. On Bev's lap was Bella, my dog who had unexpectedly come into heat and was going into town to get laid by some pedigree mate. Two minutes behind came my mum with the rest of the guests. As she drove over the rise in the road, she instantly saw the rental car pulled over to one side. Uh, for God's sake, surely they don't want to spend a penny so soon, she grumbled. Then her heart lurched. Christ, they've been attacked. From all four doors, kids were falling out. Smoke or steam rose from the front of the car in a thick cloud. Children fell to the ground, faces contorted in confusion and shock. From my mother's vantage point, it did indeed look like an attack. But where the hell were the terrorists? Where were the flashes of the AK-47s? The bush around either side of the road was fairly barren, having been eaten down by the cattle. I mean, it was the dry season. Could it be a landmine? For the next 20 seconds, no one spoke until she pulled her car alongside and discovered the real story. The front end of the Datsun seemed to have crumpled like paper and disappeared up under the front seats. A huge white concrete culvert protecting a storm drain had literally been sliced diagonally in two by the impact. Taking in the situation in an instant, 
noting the blood pouring from Sean's face, Foxy sitting on the ground in shock, Madeleine and Beverly appearing to be okay, albeit dazed. Her terror immediately turned to anger. What the bloody hell's happened, she demanded. It was a perfectly straight road. What could possibly have gone wrong? Clearly it was an accident, but why, for God's sake, in broad daylight, on a straight road, in a rented car, being illegally driven by a 16-year-old? A quick head count ensured that no one was missing or dying. She put her first aid to work. Sean had bitten straight through his tongue, causing severe bleeding but little pain. He would have a lisp for the rest of his life, but it was a great pull on the ladies. Foxy had broken his nose on the steering wheel, managed to give himself a really nice shiner, and was more in shock than anything else. Beverly had a gash in her face that would need stitches, and Spike had a cut on his leg that would leave a scar for life. Fortunately, all farmers' wives did first aid lessons each week, and my mother was able to patch up the bleeding without much fuss. But it was the shock that worried her most. Shock she knew was a killer. Grabbing the rifle Sean had been holding and piling the kids into her car, she turned around and headed back to the farm at breakneck speed, at the same time trying to make sense of what had just occurred. Now, she demanded, what happened? You'd better have a damn good excuse. John is going to be furious. Foxy, in a state of shock and unable to comprehend anything, let my cousin Madeleine, who seemed to be the only one in a sensible state of mind, tell the story. It was no secret that Foxy had fancied Madeleine for several months, writing to her, calling her, and generally making a nuisance of himself, as any love-struck teenage boy would. Madeleine had indulged him for many reasons. He was my best friend, and Madeleine adored me. She was flattered by his attentions. He was generous and amusing. He was charming, clever, erudite. And we were a part of a teen gang who hung out together. But Foxy had a problem. His vanity, he was so vain, in fact, that when driving the car that day, underage, hungover, with little driving experience under his belt and with Madeleine sitting next to him, he refused to wear his glasses, which, to be fair, were rather naff and nerdy. Yet the passengers did notice his erratic driving. Damn it, Fox, where are your specs? Sean asked. You're driving like a drunken bum, Spike added. Okay, okay, Fox concurred, and leaning across the passenger seat, he fiddled in the glove compartment for his glasses. He never saw the culvert, never noticed the car rapidly moving towards the side of the road. The vehicle hit the concrete barrier at 50 miles an hour, flying 25 or more feet through the air, and landing on its nose, the force of which rammed the engine up and under the driver's seat. The car was a write-off. The kids were very lucky, as was Bella. Back in the house, first aid kits were pulled out, bandages, mercurochrome and cotton pads were tossed aside as soon as they became saturated in blood. A sprained ankle was bound tightly, a silence descended while each person was laid on a bed or sent on a chore. 
calm was finally being restored to the group of shocked teenagers. Well, everyone except my father and Foxy. Where is that sodding kid? I'm going to bloody kill him. This was my father in full fury, and it seemed the windows rattled with his deafening voice. Nearly an hour had passed since returning to the house, and it was now that someone inquired whether anybody had seen Foxy. It dawned on us all that not only had Foxy disappeared, but so too had the gun. My father wasn't a malicious person by any stretch of the imagination, but he demanded justice where justice was due. He had remained calm throughout the hour following the accident. But now things began to change rapidly. Christ, I said, looking up from bandaging a wound. I hope Foxy hasn't gone off and shot himself. He had been in shock, unhinged almost. Fortunately, as soon as my father realised that Foxy was missing and had taken the gun, he changed tack and quietened down. For the next ten minutes, we could hear my father walking around the house, calling in a softer voice. Look, David, please show yourself. I'm not angry, just worried. Come on out now. Like a hunter, my dad stalked the house. Cupboards clicked open, then closed. Bedspreads were gently lifted. Doors squeaked open, then closed again. Minutes passed. Fred, where is Ipi David? I conabas kabangalapa cottage. Everyone strained to hear the crack of the rifle. Oh, please, Foxy, don't do anything stupid. My initial shock was now turning to anger as I digested the events. What the fuck was he up to? Fucking fuck, such a show-off. He could have killed you guys, you know. He could have killed Bella. What in God's name was he thinking? At that moment, we heard my father's voice steadily talking from one of the spare rooms in the cottage. Come out now, David. Just come quietly. And please put that gun down immediately. Nothing will happen to you. You're not in any trouble. From out under a bed, Foxy emerged, stealthily, shamefaced, but alive, ashen white. Without another word, my dad took the rifle and walked calmly back across the lawn and into the main house. The party was over. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Cast. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.